All right. So speaker this hour is Chris Graber. Uh, I just got a chance to meet Chris maybe two minutes before we started this. So uh, I, I'm rather limited to what it is he has shared with us on this. But uh, Chris has been uh, an evangelist in the South Twin Cities Church of Christ since March of 2007. Uh, but he was telling me that he, he kind of splits that. He, he works from the pulpit, but he also does uh, a large chunk of the work with the youth that are out there. Uh, he's has been married to his lovely wife, Evie. It is E. Evie. I was, ah, I knew I was going to do that. Like the moment I committed to it, I thought I was been to his wife, Evie, for 17 years. They have five sons together, so they're working on the next Minnesota basketball team. Uh, <laughs> Noah is 16. And I'm going to hopefully, is it Javen? Javen. Javen, 14. Gideon, 11. Jude, 9. And Elisha, 6. He's the point guard. Um, he has earned a Bachelor of Arts in Communications uh, from Bethel College, but he also won several speech and debate tournament championships uh, all throughout the state, regional and national levels. Uh, but he came to Bear Valley, trained here, and got a Bachelor of Theology from the Institute in 07, and a Master of Arts in New Testament from Fried Hardeman uh, in 2018. And this is a really neat one. May not mean much to you guys, but for those of us that have done some stuff in academics, it's, you know, kind of geek out about this one. While completing his master's, he also earned the Zondervan Theology Award, an award of excellence for outstanding student and graduate Bible programs. Uh, but he has spoken at lectureships and gospel meetings in Minnesota, Wisconsin, Iowa, and Kansas. Uh, but his continual aim is to glorify God through his life of service. So looking forward to this. I think we're going to enjoy this time. Uh, Chris, come preach the word, brother. All right, so I want to begin, I guess, with maybe just a little bit of audience analysis. I mean, we've got uh, a lot of different age groups, but this is primarily supposed to be the youth session here. So, like, uh, of you all that are here, like, uh, public school? Yes? Public school, most of you? No? Okay, okay, okay. All right, all right, all right. Fair, fair enough. Uh, homeschoolers around? Okay. Okay, that, that's great. Um, well, all right, wonderful. I am, I am so thankful that you all are here. I mean, you've taken time from your Saturday to be here to listen to the Word of God. That is awesome. And I appreciate that spirit that is within you, and I, I, I pray that it, it continues within you. That everybody else, I, I, it is great to see people here because it's encouraging. It is super encouraging to see people excited about the Word of God. And it's easy to become discouraged when we look at the world around us. The devil is at work in the world around us, sowing strife and division all over the place, around every corner, it seems, in the world. And it, it also creeps into the church, too. And there are godless agendas that are at work. If you're, I mean, if you're, you have some protection when you're homeschooled, right? I get that. But if you're in public school, you definitely feel that. They reach into our classrooms. They invade our entertainment. And beyond us, they affect those that we're close to, friends and family. The agendas, they're, they're working together what they're trying to do. The devil is at work trying to build an upside-down worldview where the biblical value system is considered immoral where what you read in that text is what is frowned upon out there. And you're wrong for believing it. 
for a multitude of reasons, I and mean, we had the homeschoolers cheer, okay, so maybe I'll get a few more here, but my wife and I have chosen to homeschool our five sons. So that that's what we've done. Um, and while we understand there's a call, there is, there's a call for us to be the light of the world. All right. But increasingly, Christians are feeling the need to protectively pull away from some secular institutions like public schools while their children are young and most vulnerable to this kind of indoctrination, this kind of corruption and pollution that can take place. And it wasn't all that long ago when I was in my teens and I was in a a public school classroom. So I can get y'all can kind of cheer for me, I guess, because I've got I've got both sides there. Right. So I've been there. And a lot of the problems that are out there now were there when I was in high school. They're just maybe more brazen now than they were back then. For instance, the LGBTQ agenda was was alive and and thriving when I was in high school. And if you were to speak uh, biblical truth in a public school environment, like you would be shamed and just like you would now. But you know what? I never had to designate my own pronouns, nor did I have to acknowledge the pronouns of my peers or else face repercussions. And I don't know if that's happened for you, but I my niece was in trouble at school because she didn't acknowledge someone else's preferred pronouns. It's real. And you're facing that more brazen than before. I've been asked to respond to the statement, our world seems to be crumbling. Where has God been? And I guess the the sentiment here is, what are we to think of the condition of the world around us and what it implies about our holy God? It seems obvious that in many, of the way, in many ways the world is crumbling. However, the idea that, that crumbling moral decline is, is new in the world or somehow evidence of an absence of God is an unbiblical premise that you have to reject, that we all have to reject. And we're going to approach this question by first setting realistic expectations. If you were here for my, my veranda, like we're going to cover a lot of the same territory, but it's very important for you to understand these things. Setting realistic expectations of the world, that's one. Number two, appreciating the patience of God. Three, refusing to become discouraged with God. And finally, determining to always remember our mission in spite of what goes on in the world. That we are about what we're supposed to be about, no matter what goes on out there. And so as we consider the uh, the relationship between the condition of the world and God's presence and activity, we have to remember we have these realistic expectations that we have to set. The world is moving in the direction of moral decline, broadly speaking, but this is just exactly how it's always been. Ever since the beginning of time. You go all the way back. I mean, God, God gave man free will. And that's a part of the love of God, to give you a choice. But by giving man free will, there comes the choice to rebel. Adam and Eve got that ball rolling, just doing some Bible class review, I guess, for some of you going back to, to the earliest stages. You learned about Adam and Eve in the garden and how they chose to, to rebel against God and were removed from the garden in Genesis chapter 3. And then after Adam and Eve fell and were removed in Genesis 4, what happens? Their son Cain resorted to killing their other son Abel in spite of God's warnings. You want to talk about God's presence. God is there giving them warning in Genesis 4, 7, that sin is crouching at the door and its desire is for you. And the text says, Cain would not master it though. And the rebellion continued. And when this happened, where was God again? Right there giving warnings. Where was he in the garden? Right there giving warnings, giving instruction. God's presence was there even when man chose to sin and rebel. This pattern of moral decline, it didn't take long to get to the point of where where God saw how corrupt everything was and simply had to wipe everything out. 
And that's Genesis 6. We're still in the first six chapters of the book of, of, the book of Genesis. And this happens. Man was simply too far gone. Genesis chapter 6, verses 5 through 7. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. That's quite a statement. The Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth and he was grieved in his heart. The Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the, of the land, from man to animals, to creeping things, and to birds of the sky, for I am sorry that I have made them. And at that time, Noah was the only one who found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Peter writes in, in 2 Peter 2.5 that God did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah. Notice what Noah is called here. A preacher of righteousness with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. And so where was God during this unprecedented time of moral decline where things got so bad that everything had to be wiped out? God's still present. God's still there giving warnings through Noah, who's the preacher of righteousness, while this impending destruction is coming. God is present and active, warning man, but still giving man that choice. This pattern of rebellion, I mean, it continues throughout history, going into the time period of the judges. I mean, even among God's people, it's recorded as a time where everyone did what was right in his own eyes, Judges 17, 6 and 21, 25. At that time, God had already given them the instructions and the warnings in the law of Moses. But they still went off in the path of rebellion. They would still fall into idolatry, and then God would work. He didn't abandon his people. He would wait. They'd, they'd go into rebellion. Then he'd deliver them over to other nations into slavery. And then they'd, they'd repent and come back to God, and then God would rescue them with judges. And it continued over and over again, yet everyone did what was right in his own eyes in this time period. No matter what God, God was respecting that free will choice of man, but still working and trying to warn man and eventually redeem man through Jesus Christ. When we jump to the time of the New Covenant Scriptures, as we know, the world was so counter to the cause of Christ, what happens? Christ is rejected and killed. All right, When he comes to earth, he's rejected and killed along with all the apostles except for John, and the church, church faced intense persecution in the first century. And what's interesting is how in, in the time in which God's presence... Think about where's God? That's the question. The world seems to be crumbling. Where's God? When you think about God's presence, the time in which it was visible to the point of actually taking bodily form, and subsequently the time in which God's presence was on full display through the Holy Spirit's miraculous workings in the church in the first century, it's a time where the moral state of the world was far worse than what we have now. It's not a statement about God's presence or his activity. Think of the Greco-Roman world. Within that context, not worshiping the emperor was considered treason. You didn't worship the, the emperor, you're, 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 you're committing crimes against the country. Everett Ferguson writes, The cult of emperor was attached to the most solidly established religious traditions of the ancient world. And in this context, a conflict between Caesar and Christ, between the church and empire, was inevitable. If you're a Christian, you're going to clash with the government and you're going to suffer. The Romans adopted the many Greek deities adopted by their, in their idolatrous practices, sexual immorality in the name of praising their pagan gods. 
According to Leon Morris, in places like Corinth, moral decline was so bad that the name of the city Corinth was a byword for licentious behavior, for lewdness. To Corinthianize was to corrupt with immorality. Idolatry and the sexually immoral practices that accompanied it were simply a way of life in Gentile culture. And I'm sure you think about, well, that sounds kind of like today. We're part of Gentile culture. It's just sexual immorality. It's, it's, it's godlessness. But I want you to consider for a moment social functions like marriages. Things that we hold, I mean, sacred. Marriages, funerals, banquets, and public festivals, they were typically interconnected with idol worship. Those ceremonies, those situations. Idols' temples themselves were often where these kinds of social functions took place. And so I want you to imagine for a moment to a modern day restaurant would require you to enter an idol's temple where a sacrifice to an idol would take place. You want to go to Chick-fil-A? Well, that's going to be there too. If you can imagine that, then you're not far from first century Greco-Roman society. And within that context, God's presence was there revealing the new covenant scriptures written through God's guidance and presence. It's not an indictment about the presence of God when man chooses to go the path of rebellion. And so what's the point? It's never been a problem of God's presence. And while things do appear to be getting worse around us in the short term, what we need to see is that, I mean, really, we're only looking through the lens of recent history. It's undeniable. That since the fall of man, the world has been crumbling, but God has always been present, active, with a plan to both warn man through his word and redeem man through the Savior, through Jesus Christ. That's been the plan since the fall. God has been active the whole time. And in terms of realistic expectations, we understand that the world is not going to look like the church. Don't expect the world to look like the church. You're going to get more discouraged than necessary. It is discouraging to see the, the, the direction the world is going. But you can't put the expectations of God's people on the world. In 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, the devil is called the God of this world who's blinded the minds of the unbelieving. And so then you need to expect something, that the world is going to at some level look like it's God. The God of this world, the devil, has blinded them. And that should be a given. And that doesn't mean that we can't have a positive influence. So please don't, don't lose me here. I'm not saying you can't have a positive influence on society. You can. It doesn't take anything away from our commands to evangelize and bring people into the kingdom and be vocal. It does, however, mean that when free will choices keep moving your friends in the world further and further away from God, it's only what has always happened. It's not new. It's not unique. And it's never been a reason to question God's presence activity, presence or activity, and it never will be. And we need this biblical truth built into our worldview. At some level, you've got the realm of the devil, and it's going to look like the realm of the devil. And it shouldn't shock us. It shouldn't shake our faith. It shouldn't disturb us in the slightest from our mission on this earth. Free will choice means that anyone is capable of choosing anything, and that's what societies are going to do and what they've always done. That's the direction of the world, and there is nothing new under the sun, Ecclesiastes 1.9. So that's number one, set realistic expectations, and you're not going to be questioning the presence of God when you see the condition of the world around you. But our number two here, secondly, we have to develop an appreciation for the patience of God when we consider how bad the world is. 
remember the patience of God and appreciate it. Throughout history, God has demonstrated that he is patient with sinful man. He was patient going back to, to the days of Noah with the flood. He was patient giving man the opportunity to repent before judgment. 1 Peter 3.20 says, Who once were disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. That time of wickedness was the patience of God on display. 1 Timothy chapter 1 verses 13 through 16 speaking about Paul. He says, Even though I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor, yet I was shown mercy because I acted in unbelief, ignorantly. And the grace of God, the grace of our Lord was more abundant with the faith and love which are found in Christ Jesus. It is a trustworthy statement deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners among whom I am foremost of all. Notice what he says in verse 16. He says, Yet for this reason I found mercy, so that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. God demonstrated his patience in putting up with Paul. He didn't squash Paul and kill Paul in the middle of his persecuting of, of Christians and being the foremost of sinners. He set the example of, of patience, waiting with man to come to him even though Paul was a persecutor and a violent aggressor. Someday in the future, someday in the future, the text says in, in 2 Peter 3.10, the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. Judgment is coming. That will happen. But Peter also tells us back then at the very beginning there in verse 9, the Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but what? But is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but for all to come to repentance. Therefore, we regard the patience of God, the patience of our Lord as salvation. Verse 15. There's always been a time for God to put up with man in patience before judgment. And we want his patience. All of us want his patience and we need his patience because God is not one to show partiality. Romans chapter 2 verse 11. And without his patience, every single one of us would be doomed at some point because whether we are of accountable age yet or not, at some point all sin and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 3.23. We all need that patience. And so thank God for his patience with us when we rebel. So when we see the world crumbling, let it be a reminder. You see the, the despair out there? Let it be a reminder of the good thing, of the blessing of God's patience with man. Third, we can't allow ourselves to get discouraged with God no matter what. I mean, you think about this for a moment, how shameful. How shameful would it be if somehow God's love, the source of our free will, that gift to be able to choose if his love and his purchase of redemption through Jesus Christ and his patience, all these things we've talked about, the gift of time to come to him through your rebellion to get to know him, if it's questioned by his own people as abandonment, where's God as he's waiting with you patiently to come around? Don't allow yourself to go there and in that way judge God. Additionally, discouragement in, in general is going to hurt it's going to hurt your productivity. 
If you allow yourself to become discouraged with what goes on in the world, you're going to be less productive. Randy talked a lot about Elijah earlier, and I'm gonna mention him again. Elijah had to retire after becoming discouraged and afraid. Directly after he led that bold victory over King Ahab and the, the 450 prophets of Baal and, and the other 400 prophets in, in 1 Kings 18, the word got to Elijah that Jezebel was out to kill him and so he fled to the wilderness and settled under a juniper tree that, that he could ask God a question, that he might just die because he was so discouraged. That's where Elijah was after that. Later, he ended up fleeing into a cave to hide in a cave because of discouragement. This great prophet... And God has to ask him, what are you doing here, Elijah, in verse 9 and 13 of 1 Kings 19? After that bold victory on Mount Carmel, Elijah's expectations, long story short, his expectations weren't met. And so now what does he do? He flees and he runs to a cave and he cowers, fearing that he's the only faithful person left and he would be killed by Jezebel. And, and things were obviously not as bad as Elijah thought, right? Not as bad. Obviously, God had been present with Elijah. He performed this miracle, and God was there and allowed him to perform this miracle in very vivid and powerful ways. God was present on Mount Carmel and was not going to abandon Elijah. He was not going to abandon Israel. God also tells Elijah that there were still 7,000 in Israel that had not bowed down to Baal in 1 Kings 19, 18. And so Elijah's discouragement, Elijah's pessimism, what it was, was a short-sighted distortion. When Elijah was discouraged, it, it, by implication, his faith in God's ability and in God's care, it took a swing for the worse. And it was all because of what? It was all because of how he assessed what was going on out there. All of that external assessment. He had those unrealistic expectations of what God would do after that display on Mount Carmel. But imagine how much worse it would have been, though, for Elijah if he actually, in discouragement, would have pointed the finger of blame and said, you're not present here, God. Where are you? Don't allow yourself to go there. We already know that the end of human history, the Lord is going to win. He's already won the victory. And so why would we ever become discouraged with God? He has the victory now for us that we can be a part of. Why would we get discouraged with God? That's three. And finally, we need to remember our mission. As we think about the crumbling world, as we think about the lostness of the world, we have to remember something about ourselves. We are above all kingdom citizens. God's kingdom. We, show what, uh, we know that the influence of the kingdom uh, of, of citizens like us that are a part of God's kingdom, we know the influence, we can make the world a better place as we function as the salt of the earth and the light of the world, as it says in Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 through 14, functioning as the salt of the earth and the light of the world, but simply, simply cleaning up the activity in the lost world, the conduct of the lost world, that's not our primary mission. That's not what being salt and light is all about. Just making the behavior of the world look a little better. That's not it. There's this aim that others, verse 16, others might see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Verse 16, Peter echoes this as well. 1 Peter 2.12. 
Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. This influence that we have as the salt and light of the earth, it's more about kingdom growth and God's glorification than it is about simply just getting corporations to cave to a conservative Christian agenda or something like that. We know our citizenship is not of this world. Philippians 3.20, our citizenship is in heaven. We know in 1 Peter 2.11, we're called aliens and strangers. That is our mentality. Is that your mentality? Especially when you go into public school, do you understand? I mean, you are alone in a sense in that environment where you are a stranger and an alien. But that's something to expect, realistically expect it. In Matthew 6.33, we're commanded to seek the kingdom first in our lives. It's his rule. It's his reign. It's his business. That's what we're concerned with when we encounter the world, when we encounter the culture. That's our business. And in the parable of the sower, in Luke 8.14, yes, he's talking about riches and the worries of this life, but we can look at the worries of this life in many different ways. The seed that fell among the thorns included those choked by the worries of this life. And then they would bring no fruit to maturity. Luke 21, 24 tells us that the worries of this life, they can weigh our hearts down with distractions. And so therefore, we have to resolve to have a kingdom focus ultimately in our life. That's what it's about. Where we refuse to become overburdened with the worries of the world, the direction of the world, the condition of the world. We don't allow that to tear us down. But we put our energy into bringing men from the world into the kingdom, making disciples of all nations, Matthew 28, 19 through 20. And the kingdom focus also remembers that God's kingdom is always growing and God's kingdom can never be defeated. Remember that as well as you think about the lostness of the world. We know that the gates of Hades will not prevail against it, Jesus says in Matthew 16, 18. What happens over time as, as Christians die, the kingdom doesn't get smaller. As people convert, as time and these years pass, it's just more kingdom citizens. And death doesn't conquer it. And you're a, you get to be a part of that. And so you can't allow yourself to get discouraged or take your eyes off of that mission. And thinking about the Apostle Paul, what did the Lord say his mission was? I got behind in my slides. <laughs> Acts 9. What could Paul expect when he was engaged in the mission? What could Paul expect? What was his mission? Acts 9, 15 through 16. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel. That's often where people stop when talking about Paul. That's what he was going to do. Go bear his name. But no, look, verse 16. What does it say here? God says, For I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. That was central to the, the mission of Paul, what was going to happen as he engaged the culture and tried to bring men to the kingdom. So Paul was charged with preaching the gospel, and he could expect suffering in the process. And it's telling in that all we have written, what we don't see from the Apostle Paul, and what we don't see from Jesus, is this desire to go out and fight Caesar. Caesar, excuse me, Caesar can't speak right now. Caesar, to fight the government. That's not what he was about. He wasn't trying to just get social change to clean up the world. That was never the mission. So however, what we do see though is these efforts to build the kingdom preaching the gospel one person at a time, bringing men to the kingdom. 
And it's inevitable that when we are focused on building up the kingdom, something is going to happen. The world will be impacted. When we're focused on bringing people to Jesus, the world will change. However, thinking that somehow we first have to change the world so that the kingdom can grow, that has it backwards, and that can keep us distracted from the mission. Or you think, oh, the gospel will flourish if we just get this legislation to pass. So let's focus on politics rather than bringing men to Jesus. Don't go there. Remember the mission. People often talk about the culture wars. And people mean many different things when they talk about the culture wars and when they refer to the culture wars. And if engagement in the culture and in the wars of the culture, if it looks like Peter and the apostles in Acts chapter 5 continuing to teach the gospel in spite of the council's orders that they needed to be silent, then yes, absolutely, you have to be engaged in the culture wars. There is no choice. You have to teach the kingdom. You have to be about kingdom business no matter what. You have to be engaged in that sense. And as we engage the world around us, we have to take measures to be prepared. Prepared to protect yourself. Prepared to protect your family, your friends from evil influences that are becoming more prevalent here in America, more and more brazen here in America. We need to be prepared to obey God rather than men. If governments start criminalizing certain kinds of speech, it's trending that direction. Be prepared. You may have to suffer like the Apostle Paul had to suffer. We have to be prepared to be persecuted, and that too is something that all Christians should expect, but it's not always talked about as part of the cost that you have to count to become a disciple, but it should be. Paul wrote in 2 Timothy 3.12, notice the language here. Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. All. What makes us think as Americans, as a part of, of Western civilization, that we would be different? Just because we have some, some benefits of freedom, does that mean that we're going to be exempt from being part of the all? Paul goes on to speak more truth to the evangelist Timothy in 2 Timothy 3, 13 through, through 15. Did I? I got to go back here. There we go. 2 Timothy 3, 13 through 15. But evil men and impostors will proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. That's the direction they go. Proceeding from bad to worse. That's what you can expect. What does he say, though? He says, you, however, Timothy, you, however, evangelist, you, however, Christian, what do you do when evil men proceed from bad to worse? You, however, continue in the things you have learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them. And that from childhood you have known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. And it was good advice for Timothy, and it's good advice today. When in the world you've got evil men and they trend from bad to worse, more brazen in sin, we can't get sidetracked from the mission. We stay in the things that we have heard and learned, which give wisdom that leads to salvation through Jesus Christ. That is the mission. That's what we don't get sidetracked from. Conversely, though, if your expectations for success in the culture war, if it's measured by government legislation, if it's measured by Disney Plus or some secular company changing direction, I mean, those things can happen. But if, if, if you're putting all your hope in these companies, just cleaning up their conduct, you're going to be disappointed and discouraged when the, the world looks like the world. That's not to say, again, we can't have an impact. 
We can, we can choose to abstain from things. We can choose to boycott. Those are all great things that can affect change. And I'm not frowning on that. Remember, I'm Mr. Homeschooling my kids. I, I'm doing some of this, okay? Pulling away from some of these things in the name of, of, of personal and family protection and their great ideas. It's not the only way, but it is, it is a way that you can. And as we engage in the culture, we have to guard ourselves from becoming like the culture. 1 Peter 1, 15 through 16 says, But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior. Because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. There are simply things, when you talk about abstaining from things, maybe Disney Plus goes a different direction, or, 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 or some other company goes a different direction. Talk about abstaining th from things. There are things we should abstain from, not merely to spark social change, but because of our call to holiness. And that is part of the mission. For instance, we should avoid things that glorify sin. And I'm talking about inappropriate movies that glorify sin. I'm talking about inappropriate music that glorifies sin. Reading materials that glorify sin. Television shows that glorify sin. Apps on your phones that glorify sin. And we do this, why? In the name of holiness. That's why we do this. Because we're called to abhor what is evil and cling to what is good. Romans 12, 9. Abhor the wickedness when we see it, the glorification of sin. And we take these principles with us when we encounter the culture and we remember our mission. But also what we need to remember is if it wasn't mandatory for first century Christians, and we talked about all the idolatry going on in the Greco-Roman world, if you read in 1 Corinthians chapters 8 through 10, it wasn't necessary for them to boycott the meat market where idol sacrifices were being sold for profit. If it wasn't required to have that kind of separation from secular institutions, we need to make sure that we don't start binding on brethren, binding on your friends, things that aren't supported by Scripture. Be careful how you pass judgment and speak from Scripture concerning our mission. And so when we think of the state of the world around us, and we think of what it implies about our holy God, we have to have the, the outlook that the state of the world, what it ultimately is, is a reminder. It's a reminder. It's a reminder of why God sent a redeemer. We see the lostness in the world, the sin that's prevailing, the brazen wickedness that's out there. It's a reminder of why God had to redeem man. It's a reminder for us to be busy in kingdom work because judgment is coming. It's a reminder that God is both present and God is patient, giving warnings through his word and through his people. And a reminder that we have the privilege, you have the privilege of participating in that. Being God's messenger to give those warnings. Being a, a, a light bearer to the world to bring men to him so that they can experience his presence in the way that you can. And so going forward... We have to first remember, set those realistic expectations. Don't expect that the world is going to look like the church. Second, appreciate God's patience with man. When you see the sin in the world, thank God for his patience that he's had with you and that he's having with the world around you. And then no matter what, don't become discouraged with God. Don't ever point the finger of blame and judgment in God's direction because of his love that he's given us, the choice to serve him, and his, the blessing of time. Don't allow yourself to go there. And finally, remember your mission as you engage in the culture and don't get distracted with the worries of the world. Be about the business of the kingdom. 
Regardless of the state of this world, we are servants of the master out to bring him glory and kingdom service. We can't follow Elijah off into a cave. We can't go live in isolation. No matter how bad things look, we can't despair or second guess God ever. We can't second guess God's love, his presence, or his perfect will. Amen. Amen.